What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by Ironswick Dog Quip, who's our good friend, Jason Furman. Good friend? Good friend. Yeah. I like him. <laughs> <laughs> so Jason, through Einswick Dog Quip, is the importer and distributor of many products, including HF Mills, Herm Springer, and he has his own line of tugs and toys and sleeves and equipment called Dogpool. Yeah, he's got a lot of stuff. Yeah, pretty much anything. If you want any dog-related training gear, talk to Jason at Einswick Dog Quip. The best way to do that is to look him up on Facebook. He can pretty much get you any dog gear you need at probably the best price that can be gotten. He's a grumpy old bastard, but he's a good bloke. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today, we have the honour and privilege to be joined by the College Scholar, Megan Cairns. Hi. Hi, Megan. How's it going? Good. Good. Welcome to Australia. Thank you so much. It's wonderful here. So, you pretty much got straight off a plane and jumped right into this, didn't you? I really did. Yep. (laughs) After that ordeal, I know what that flight's like. Pat and I recently came back from the IACP conference over in uh, Florida. So that was a nice 20 hour journey, a five hour flight to Florida and then a 14 hour flight back home Mm -hmm. or or in that relative order. Yep. We kind of know what it's like to go through that training experience. So yeah, to get off a plane and then jump straight into a seminar is quite an ordeal. It is. It is. We were exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. We had a couple of days. So are you catching up on the sleep? All right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I read a little bit of your bio online the other day, mm-hmm. and you started off as a scientist. I did. Yep. I was a biochemist. I yep. went to school, and I was working in academic research originally, mm-hmm. and I had just terrible dogs. So I rescued a dog that had every behavioral issue in the book, Yep. and he was what started that whole entire journey for me. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, my wife's a scientist, and that's fundamentally how we met, is that she was coming home from her job one day and saw my dog training sign on the fence and went home, got a dog and brought it down for an assessment and uh, changed her career from being a scientist into a dog trainer. And now she's back into health sciences. So yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love it. She's still a scientist at heart, but you know, she's, uh, she's, she always describes herself as a little bit of a science nerd, but she still did her time as a trainer and worked in the centers and did her apprenticeships and did really well at it as well. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was pretty cool. We're here in Sydney, mm-hmm. just wrapped up the seminar here at Pet Resorts. Yes. How was it? I wasn't there. Uh, I was in New Zealand myself. I couldn't get there. Doing tell a me. seminar yourself. Mm. Yeah. So tell me all about it. It was amazing. It was such a, this is such an amazing facility here and everybody was so wonderful. So we had such a good group of very diverse dogs from, you know, pet dogs struggling with reactivity to people that just wanted a little bit more energy in their training. Mm. So it was fun to see the whole gamut of dogs from, you know, people that just wanted to learn how to communicate with their pet dog just a little bit better and folks that wanted a little bit more enthusiasm, maybe for competitive dog sports. They were just kind of embarking on that journey. So it was a fun and phenomenal group of dogs and people. That's yeah. awesome. So cover the, the full gamut, really. It really was. And it was so much fun to see kind of the same concepts applied in such different ways to different dogs and mm-hmm. see kind of the impact that it had there. So it was amazing. Mm. And then you're tomorrow or the next day headed down to Melbourne and then doing it all again in Melbourne. Yes. I think we have a couple of days of rest here and then we're headed out to Melbourne and we'll be there for a couple of days and I don't say it right, I know. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think of that movie every time I hear an American say, is it Rain Man? Or? Rain Man. Yeah. <laughs> Qantas. Yeah, Qantas right. goes directly to Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> I think of that every single time. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you've got like an empire really in the College Scholar, but how did it, this come to be? How did you say that you just had a, a problematic dog and you're in an academic research field? Mm-hmm. Tell us a little about a little bit about. We love origin stories. That's yep. kind of our shtick. Yep. Tell us a little bit about how it came to be that 
this horrible dog or problematic dog, did yes. you say? Yes. Has led to you being here in Australia teaching other people about their dogs. Yeah. So when I graduated from high school and I went out on my own, I decided the first thing that I wanted to do was go get a dog. And back there, back then I was really kind of this doe-eyed rainbow butterflies, love is all you need to save the world type of a person. Mm-hmm. And so I went out to a rescue and I got myself a little pit bull mix puppy, some sort of bull breed, nobody really knows. And I brought him home and I thought, all I got to do is love him, right? Like you don't Mm -hmm. have to train your dog. I was just so naive. And this dog had more drive than most Malinois, I think. Mm -hmm. And I had no clue what this concept of drive was, didn't know anything. And I just remember taking him to puppy class and we were surrounded in that big group and everybody's dog was sitting and looking up at the handler and mine was alligator rolling at the end of the leash. I was just like, I cannot control this. So we started bringing in trainers and one after the other, after the other, after the other. And consistently we were failing Mm -hmm. our dog consistently we were failing our dog. He had separation anxiety. He's, he tore a nine foot hole in my carpet. It was just pretty constant. And for me, I didn't know how to deal with it. I just literally did not have the tools to deal with it. So we uh, ended up bringing in a pet sitter to stay with him all day while I was at work. Wow. Literally cost me a fortune, but I literally did not know how to survive this puppy. And I loved him. I wanted to keep him. I wanted mm-hmm. to figure him out. So uh, she did that, and on day number two, she lost him at an unfenced park. So we got him back seven days later, and we, when we brought him back, he was displaying some kind of odd behaviors. We had some friends over. He ended up lunging, biting, and we developed some aggression at that point. Mm-hmm. And Do you know where he was in those seven days? Uh, the animal shelter. So do you think that aggression came in from something there or that was probably just building to that anyway? I mean, honestly, looking back and hindsight being what it is, the dog was completely overstimulated by everything in the universe and had zero outlets for Mm -hmm. it. None. And I think that that experience was just kind of tipping the scales where it was already going, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think we were already on that path, but back then I had no idea. Mm -hmm. So we got him back. We went through trainers. We went through a whole heck of a lot of experiences. And at that point, I went back to school. Uh, I was going to get my PhD. I was going to you know, continue the path. That didn't work out. So I got my master's degree in business. And simultaneously, I was just taking time out of work to learn how to train my dog. Mm-hmm. And that's where everything started because I was shelling out thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and nobody was giving me the tools to fix my dog. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had to figure out how to do it myself. And what I learned in the whole process was that there was not a single person that told me you're the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, they told me like, teach the sit, teach the down, teach the heel, do all of these things. But nobody said, Hey, listen, Stop crying on your dog at night. Like, stop doing all of these things, right? Like, your dog needs you to be a little bit better for him. Uh And I think everybody was so scared to tell me that, but it never helped us solve the problem because he developed aggression. I developed fear. I was more reactive than he was. Mm -hmm. Nobody told me. It's your behavior. And so I had to learn that on my own, Mm -hmm. which was such a powerful journey for me. So that's what started the entire thing. And originally we were training dogs with aggression and and reactivity. That was where my whole entire foundation was. So we had a couple of facilities in San Diego and then it kind of graduated from there. And now I work predominantly, I would say, online because throughout that whole entire process when I was doing that, I kind of graduated into all of these other areas, but it wasn't reaching enough people. Sure. And so to be able to take everything online and to be able to help people in the four and five and 6,000 people with their dogs, that was really impactful for me. So that's kind of where the business evolved since then. That's cool. Yeah, it was really Mm. fun. Yeah, it is. In that journey of sort of coming to understand that, is there anyone that was a big influence to you along the way or anyone of note that you'd say like, this is the person that gave me the key or this is the the day I understood what was going wrong, or it was just a really slow process? It was a really slow process. So I think it was probably after my dog passed away that I actually had the realization of everything as it came together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say that 
that the human trainers were the ones that had the biggest impact on me at that point sure. because it was such a human issue and it was just not a dog issue. I kept handing the leash off to people and handing it to trainers and they'd get perfect results. And I think tackling the human issue, as soon as we got into studying things like human performance and human development, that's what ended up having the major role in changing how I looked at dog behavior entirely. Mm-hmm. Patricia McConnell primarily wrote a book around that mm-hmm. on the other end of the leash, mm-hmm. outlining that a lot of the problem that is you. Yeah. Um, which is good. It's a it's a direct reflection on a responsibility that people have to accept is that I'm responsible for the way my child turns out. Mm-hmm. I'm responsible for the way my dog turns out. Yes. We were talking about this the other day. We've got a little audience in the room as well. So we've got um, <laughs> we've, we've, we've got Megan's posse with us today. <laughs> her, her massive <laughs> her crew. Which includes uh, Lauren Hoyle, who brought you out. You can say hi, Lauren. Say hello. Say hello. Hi, everyone. <laughs> One of those things with identifying that people are a large part of the problem, as you said, is that now we can really get to the nitty gritty of Good work. Absolutely. You know, when we're, we're constantly just, you're right, Megan, this is a problem that I see a lot of the times is people want to hand their problems off to somebody else. Absolutely. They pretty much want to give their dog to someone and say, here, fix it, mm-hmm. which is great. But the problem is, is that they've then got to take the dog back again. Absolutely. And then what happens in that time. So that's really a good part. I mean, even when we do boarding and training here, when people ring up and say, well, I just don't have time, part of that feedback that we give the client is, eventually you're going to have to make the time. Sure. Like even if we do the the foundation work for your dog, you're mm-hmm. still going to have to build the next layer and the next layer. Like you can't just stop and hope that it's just going to fix itself because if the dog comes back and sees you as the weak link, the dog's going to revert back to old comfortable behavior. Absolutely. It's going to look like a child would. A child will go to grandma's house, get spoiled rotten, mm-hmm. and know that grandma is a catalyst for stealing cookies, getting lollies, getting breakfast in bed and so forth. Mm-hmm. Pat's nodding his head because that probably happens with Rip all the time. <laughs> <laughs> his nana has been known to give him chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he loves going there. Of course he does. <laughs> yeah. It's just a plethora of reinforcement for him. Yeah. For doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, for doing something. Yeah. Hmm. I loves it. Yeah, I think for me, when I was first starting out, I was consistently failing at reaching the humans. So we when, were, I think we all were. Yeah, it's so hard. I think we it all was were. So hard. Mm. And so for me, taking a step back, and I literally just pulled completely out of dogs for a good long while. And I said, I need to learn how to read people better, and how mm-hmm. to motivate people better, and how to speak to people better because I have good dog skills, and I can handle my leash, and I can handle your leash. But the people, I'm not making the change happen with them. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time doing that because I had to learn the other end of the leash. I literally had to learn everything that I could know about them. And I still study that to this day because it's the hardest piece of the puzzle for me. Yeah. I think uh, I wish you could use this language with the average pet owner that wants to do a board and train or something. But what I try to convey to them in not in these words is that I can give your dog some conditioned responses yes. and I can make your dog operant, mm-hmm. but then I need you to use this newly operant dog who knows he can control his outcomes, yes. apply some of these conditioned responses <laughs> and get what you want from the dog. Right. Unfortunately, you can't say that you because they look that. at you like you've got a third head. But <laughs> What but language are you speaking? What sorcery yeah. is this? <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. And you say, I want him to stop kicking me over when I walk in the house. And I say, yes. I can show him the context of that here, Mm -hmm. but you have to apply that everywhere else. And and that's the hardest thing, I think, in any sort of dog training where you are training the dog and not the person is getting them to follow through with it and keep it up, which I think is a pretty cool thing about the online model is you can't do that. I'm constantly tempted when I'm training with someone to just be like, just fucking give it to me (laughs) and and I'll do it. But that's not helpful. It's not. Yeah. And so online, I think you can – even though there's a certain, this is where I do my rubbing my fingers together and say like, there's a thing that in person you can't get online. It's I think true. that, but online it, it certainly gives you a physical barrier to the idea of like, just let me do it. And it then is. It, it, you feel better in the moment and right there on the spot, the dog looks better. Absolutely. But it's not better. It's not better. And that's one of the hardest things I think for me too, is I always want to take the leash and I always mm. want to do it because I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, it's evolving, but it's going so slow and it would be so fast if I just took the leash. Mm. And I think the online space has, has stopped me 
entirely from, I'd literally never interfere anymore because mm-hmm. I think being in that online space and being completely unable to for so long, yeah. it's, it's really helped. And for us, the model is that we teach live and we teach every single day and we're in your inbox and we're talking to you. And so that's the best that I can do in an online space. And I think that it helps. I really do. I think it yeah. helps, but you're completely right. There's something about being in person that you'll never get online. Mm. Never. I don't know. I don't know how to recreate it. We try all the time. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about what what is the online packages that you guys offer and how do they work, that sort of thing. Yeah. So we do, uh, I mean, it's always varying depending on what people are asking for help with. Uh, so we do everything from like, I want to provide an outlet for the folks that are just getting involved perhaps in competitive dog sports, but are completely and utterly terrified. And maybe a club setting is really, really terrifying for them. Mm -hmm. And I know that that was me when I first got into any kind of dog sports and I stepped on the field, I was like shaking and (laughs) I was so underprepared. And I just want them to have tools to feel like they're prepared when they step into that club environment. So Mm -hmm. not to replace the club environment, but, but to give them a little bit of preparation. So we do some online courses around that. And then also some online courses around just some basic basic behaviors for competitive dog sports. And then also for a lot of like, we just did a 30 day reactivity boot camp, and it's all live and daily interaction to help cool. people overcome things like reactivity and aggression. So that went really well. We just wrapped that one up. So all of them are live. I teach them live. I record them as we go so that I can really gauge what the group is doing and mm-hmm. how they're moving through the content and what I need to present next. And then they get weekly check-ins. So it's like a lesson a week, and then you get weekly check-ins, and you have uh, a corresponding Facebook group where everybody kind of socializes and talks and shares their videos and helps each other with their training. So that kind of environment that we've created really helps people start to move the needle on these behaviors. But it's mostly foundational stuff. So folks that are just embarking on a, a journey in some sort of competitive dog sport, they need a little bit of motivation. They need a little bit of engagement. They need to learn how to use markers, things like that. We cover all of that kind of stuff. And then also things like reactivity, aggression. I think we're going to do separation anxiety next cool yeah those foundation skills as we we're just talking about before is really that's the you always talk about there's no point building a house on sand right exactly like, and, and it all the house just flies up when there's a really good foundation there Absolutely. and it's so hard to convince people no 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 like i know you want to work on this one percent behavior yes but we won't even have to actually work on that mm-hmm. if the dog just has a, a strong foundation in, in its markers. Yes. Like even just that one thing alone, yes. just understanding a, a strong marker means that that other behavior will go away. Huge. And I think a lot of people miss that point, right? Because yeah. they give their marker and the dog doesn't respond at all. And they're like, I got marker training. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. And I'm like, wait, let's take a look at this piece of the puzzle just yeah. a little bit more closely. And I think that might be a little bit of a struggle in the online space because I think people automatically assume that I've already taught this. So let's skip this lesson yeah. and we'll pull out a little bit more of those foundational pieces there. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, So you spoke about when you first got into competitive dog sports. Mm -hmm. How did that come to be? You've now gone from owned a problematic dog. Mm -hmm. And what was your first sport? So my first sport was French ring. Uh, It was not intended to be French ring. So what ended up happening was I was was literally driving down the street in my town. And I look over to the side and I saw a police canine training session going on Mm -hmm. just outside of a shopping mall. I think I stopped traffic because I had been a dog trainer. I was just teaching aggression and reactivity, knew nothing really about the dog sport world. And I was driving and I looked over and I saw all of this training going on. I stopped and I thought, how the heck do they do that? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, how do they teach a dog to bite somebody? I have no clue. And so I started calling around trying to get somebody to teach me what they knew about this. And I said, listen, I'll do anything. I will clean your kennels. I will clean up dog poop. I don't, I don't care. Just show me how this is done. And I remember getting one trainer on the phone and he, he just laughed at me. Most of them did laugh at me. They were mm-hmm. like, oh, there's this doe-eyed little girl that's, that's calling and wanting to learn about Malinois. And so I got this trainer on the phone and he says, listen, you don't need me. You don't need a mentor. You need a Malinois. First thing that you need. (laughs) And here's what he told me. He told me, because he was messing with me clearly now, he said, I want you to call around and I want you to find a sport dog breeder. 
And he said, and I want you to ask them for the hardest, most dominant male that they have in their litter. And he said, and I want you to take it home and I want you to do a dog sport with it. And then I want you to call me in two years. And this is so me. Okay. (laughs) You don't need shooting lessons. You just need a gun. This is literally what he told me. So and me, again, the only person that would answer the phone for me back then. Yeah. And so I said, all right, I'm going to do it. So I started calling breeders, 37 breeders. 37 breeders. I called 37 breeders because I'm a researcher. This is, you know, biochemist. So I called 37 different breeders. Some of them threatened to give me exactly what I was asking them for. Some of them said, oh, I have a show line dog, but it'll work. And then some of them laughed at me. And then finally I got this breeder who said, no, no, no. Here's a female. <laughs> right? Like, this is your first dog. Here's a soft, biddable female. And let me tell you, that dog almost killed me. Yeah, I had right. no clue what I was doing in the beginning and almost killed me. And I walked out and I said, I want to do IPO. This is what I thought back then. It was, you know, we weren't talking about IPO. And I said, I want to do Shudson with my dog. And this is what I want to do. And she said, no, no, no. You want to do ring sport. And here's a female. And she literally set me straight and guided me throughout the entire process. So thank God. I was lucky. When you said the dog nearly killed you, let, let's, <laughs> let's unpack that a little not bit. Not really. Not, <laughs> not really. But okay. it was, it was a test for me because I think when you come into the, from the pet dog world and, and to be quite honest, I still at that point didn't have an understanding of this concept of drive mm. because nobody was talking about it. So, you know, it was in my circle, at least we were talking about it just a little bit, but nobody really had a firm understanding. It was still about teaching behaviors. It was not about understanding emotion. And so when I graduated into this whole entire new world, I had so much to learn. And I felt like it was a constant struggle with my dog. And it wasn't my dog at that point. It was clearly my lack of skill. Uh, but it definitely forced me to up my game to a place you would I would have never gotten had I not gone into that world and had I not gotten a Malinois. Mm. Pressure makes diamonds. <laughs> it does. And thank goodness that my breeder was so supportive. And she told me, listen, you're going to ruin your first dog. Like you just are, yeah. you know, but every dog after that is just going to get better and better and better and better for you. So, you know, learning experience for sure. But, you know, this was a dog that, you know, I'd ask her to down and she would bark at me and launch up at me and bite me. And I had no clue why any of that stuff was happening. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I got way in over my head. It's kind of funny, isn't it? It's a little, it keeps coming back to Daniel Coyle's book, The Talent Code, Mm -hmm. all that struggle that develops the person within. Like, Mm -hmm. I think every time I've heard an origin story of somebody who started off in the industry and still is going strong and still is finding success in the industry had that initial struggle with the dog, like just had it and it, nothing seemed to make sense at mm-hmm. the start and um, they just wanted to push through and persevere. So it's it's kind of refreshing to hear that most of us are on the right track. <laughs> I, I had a reasonably similar story, only I didn't get the breeder that was like, no, you want this. Oh, I, no. I got the guy I was like, yeah, I got that dog. Oh, no. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, it was like, oh, fuck, I live with a dragon now. <laughs> And now I have How to- much money you got? <laughs> yeah. here's, here's your dog. I was like, yeah, now I live with a dragon and now I have to figure out how the fuck to control this thing. Oh, my God. It was a disaster. I, I- but like I say, I, I think back to that. So what happened was I was in the army and on a deployment I saw another, another coalition forces dog. And the dog was trained by someone else and the handler and the dog had an a amazing relationship. And he made- owning and working a dog like that seem a lot easier than it of was. Course. And, and he genuinely didn't know. He was not a dog trainer. No. He was a handler. No. And his dog was excellent. And as a handler, he was excellent. And so to me, I was like, oh, this is easy. And and to him, he was like, yeah, it's totally easy. Just tell it to do whatever you want. Like, and it does it. But his dog had learned, like, his, and his dog was a very serious dog. And he had learned, like, I just do what he says. I get to tear people to pieces. Mm-hmm. And so everything else is easy. And, yeah. and I was like, yeah, that, that totally seems fine. And then got back to Australia and was found out that's not the case. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think that's common though, because I think even to this day, people see my dog and they're like, oh, I want a Malinois. I'm like, yeah. no, here's a Maltese, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I say the opposite. I say, yeah, get one for sure. <laughs> I, think, I think everybody should be forced to either own a Malinois or a Springer Spaniel. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Springer yeah. Spaniel. <laughs> yeah. I call, I call her my house Mally. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Even though she's she's worse in the house than my Mally. Yeah. <laughs> so French ring. Mm-hmm. I started in French ring originally. So I was working in Southern California and that's how I started my first dog. So we were in Southern California for, hmm, 
I think maybe until my dog was three and then we relocated to Texas and then we ended up getting involved in private security. So that's what we were doing out there after that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So French ring is probably the biggest ring sport in California, right? I I would say Mondeo ring at this point. Like I think Mondeo ring is is kind of surging and French ring is kind of on the decline. Mm -hmm. And did you ever do any Mondeo? I did not do any Mondeo. So French ring and IPOs what you've sort of been involved in? Yeah, I did French ring originally and probably more. Now I'm embarking on IPO because I was so fortunate to, when I was living in Southern California, work with some amazing help. And mm-hmm. with French ring, you really have to have yeah. a solid training decoy. Mm-hmm. And I honestly so grateful to work with one of the best, I think, in the world. And so then when I moved, I didn't have access because I'm in a pretty rural area to that. And so IPO now is more conducive to me training by myself and mm-hmm. then getting help yeah. on a lesser, less frequently. So I've just embarked on that journey and it's fun. Like it's fun learning something that is completely new to you. So yeah, I think that's the strength of IPO in my opinion is that you really can teach most things yourself and yes. even all the all the components that involve the helper you can teach yes. break it down into component parts and then just bring someone in for the the final part yeah and it's a fun challenge because when i was in french ring you know the obedience completely different and yeah. so now i'm dealing with reinforcement history and i'm you know because i started my dogs all in that way oh so changing dogs over you're not starting a new dog no i'm Ooh. not yep i have well so one dog is just going to stay ring and we're just going to find him some help because he's not suitable i don't think he's suitable to change gears like that mm-hmm. uh but one of my dogs i think is actually maybe better suited for ipo so for him he's the one that i'm I'm going to make the switch. And so far, so good. That's cool. Yeah, but it's work. That'll be interesting trial day. <laughs> Watch your legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it should be a pretty clear pitch out. It, it should be fine. He prefers the sleeve anyways. Okay. And he, pre- he prefers the work anyways. And I think that this is a better sport for him. He should have been in it all along. I think sometimes we don't give dogs the benefit of the doubt that they're smart enough to work out where, where their bread and butter is coming from. Absolutely. Yeah. You can have... A poor trainer and a and a badly trained dog, that won't make that distinction quite well. Sure. But when you're working with a good handler and a good dog, yep. it does make the distinction. I've seen the dogs being able to carry over well because the dog basically goes, well, there's no point in staying on legs anymore. Mm-hmm. It makes the decoys uncomfortable. Absolutely. Um, it's like kickboxers who go into boxing. Mm-hmm. You know, the boxers are always worried. Is this guy just going to suddenly get a little hazy after he gets clicked on the jaw exactly. and then kick me in the face? Mm-hmm. That is a genuine concern in those circles. And sure. it is when dogs have gone from ring sport into IPO. Absolutely. So yeah, it's a little, it is always a little bit of a concern, but you know. I think a good clear dog doesn't really have too many problems with that. Like I agree. You know, we've got in, in PSA, Defended attack is quite often an IPO sleeve that is used to try and trick the dog into bite this and they have to ignore that and bite the suit. Sure. But I've trained dogs that we've, while teaching that, we're also teaching the call off using IPO style sleeves, like barrel sleeves. So the dog earlier today, we'll teach him to ignore that. Mm -hmm. And now in the next session, we're teaching him to only bite that. Yes. They get it. They do. It's context. Yeah. It's context. That's the best thing about dogs is that they're so contextual. Yeah. Yeah. So you said earlier you have eight Malinois? So we have eight Malinois at our house right now. A little mm-hmm. bit crazy, um, but it's definitely my my passion. And uh, yeah, so we have eight at my house. They're not all mine, uh, but most of them are. So let's be really <laughs> honest about it. <laughs> so you're involved in raising dogs for other people? or is that- I was for a long time. That's that. That is what I did. I did all the foundation work for other people. Um, Now the answer is no. So now I find myself just helping dogs um, that maybe found themselves in a, helping working dogs that maybe found themselves in a not so perfect situation. Mm -hmm. And then they've got no place to go. So they come to me and we help them and get them over it or we place them if we can and they can hang out with us if we can. That's cool. Yeah. So some of them, uh, we have three right now that we're working with that, that were returned that couldn't cut it in sport for whatever reason too much or too little dog. And so the two little dogs we usually can place into a pet home or mm-hmm. agility or something like that. But the other ones we can't. <laughs> right. uh, and when you say return, do, do you breed them? Or do you breed no, any- no, no. They were going to go back to their breeder right. originally. So they can come hang at my house and we can find them a good home. Okay. Have you ever been involved in breeding dogs? So we did a uh, whelping of a couple of litters and then yes, once and never again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no. I, w- 
would love to. Sometimes I see, see these dogs and I think, oh my gosh, you are so amazing and solid and stable, but no, there's no place for me in that. It's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of heartache. And I think so many people, especially in the States, are breeding working dogs for no good reason. And mm. there's just so many of them. And then there's so many people that are so spectacular at it that I think just, I'm going to just let them do their thing because that is their thing. And it's, it's not mine. I, I don't want to contribute to it. Yeah. So. And I feel the same way. It's a whole nother area of expertise. It that is. is um, I don't have the time and energy no. to warrant the output. Yes. Mm. Energy yeah. is the key word in breeding dogs. It is. It really tests your metal on an energetic level or, and the emotional one too. I mean, you've got to be prepared that when you're breeding puppies, you're going to encounter dead puppies from time to time, That's you it. know, like stillborns and yep. all sorts of things. I mean, it's not the glorified things that he, where people just think, oh, these cute little puppies just pop out of their mum. Exactly. Um, <laughs> there is complications, there's problems, there's disease that you've got to deal with and manage and yep. all of the, the mess and the turmoil <laughs> that they actually create. But, you know, there's also the rewarding side of it as well is that you can get to watch the development and the history of the puppies yes. from day dot. Yep. Uh, that's an interesting thing to be involved in, especially from a behavioural point of view that when you can see what's actually happening in that litter and who's moving through the ranks. However, what they did find, it just segueing off a little bit, what they did find when they did the Superdog program at Lachlan Air Force Base is that you can't determine that, that a puppy that has all the right characteristics at seven weeks of age mm-hmm. is going to turn out to be the dog you want for working. Yep. Sometimes it's just a bit of a firing arrow, an arrow in the dark and it hoping really it lands somewhere safe. It really is. I mm. feel that way about breeding a lot, actually. Yeah. So, no. It's a dice roll every it time. It is, yeah. It absolutely always is. is. It always, and I've seen some of the best two dogs crossed that produced nothing. just nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And then you see this this dog that doesn't even bite cross to another one, and it produces these just outstanding dogs. And so it is. It, it's a complete roll of the dice. You try your best, right? You do your research. You do your homework. There has been history in that. There's plenty of evidence to say that if you produce two good dogs from astounding bloodlines that you're going to – get something pretty amazing. Yep. However, I've seen crosses before where people have behind the back of the breeder said, you know, this is a chicken heart dog. There's nothing in this. The bitch is weak. The male's not that good. And yet it will produce some of the best working dogs you've ever seen. Yep. You're in biology or something, what mm-hmm. you're saying? Yeah. yeah. So you know about recessive genes and so forth. Well, they can resurface. Exactly. Um, so you, they're not taking into account the lineage of grandparents, great-grandparents. Exactly. Even though it's not present in the dogs right now, mm-hmm. it can be in some time. Absolutely. You notice that, like, there's some, you know, famous stud dogs that only produce, say, like, good females and no good males. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even th- just diving into that makes my head hurt. I know, right? <laughs> and I know, I know as someone that sources dogs, it's important to know all that, and, mm-hmm. but it's just such a thick topic and it's so hard to get. And, and, and to... You got to be able to talk to people who have those dogs and can tell you the truth. That's mm-hmm. the, that's really the hardest part. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people I think maybe even they try to tell you the truth, but their interpretation is that's different. That's huge. That's one of the hardest things. I mean, we get a lot of dogs back, right, that are going to get returned to their breeder that don't have a place to go, and the interpretation of the dog's behavior before it gets to us completely opposite from what we see. Yeah. You know. So then I'm like, you know, how much of this was the training that happened and how much of it was the environment and how, like, how yeah. do I even know right now? One of the dogs that I have, I kind of know, cause I raised three brothers. So I kind of know how much of it is genetic because they were so super similar, but this one has some other issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, overall it's really hard to separate those two things. Mm. I can think about that forever. I know. Right. It's a, it's a <laughs> tricky topic to it go is. down. So at the seminar on the weekend, mm-hmm. pick a side, what was your favorite dog that came out? Name oh, the dog and the person. Don't do that to me. <laughs> oh, that was really tough. I would say probably my favorite dog. Ooh, this is really mean. I know. Gosh. <laughs> I'd say my favorite dog probably working was Iggy, which was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lauren looks happy about that. Yeah. So Iggy was a bull Arab cross that had you know, a history of, of fear and some big trauma Mm -hmm. and just seeing the enthusiasm of that dog getting out and playing with the owner and just having a blast and like bounding around the room and just seeing the grin on her face, even though she was so nervous and the grin on her face and the transformation over the course of the weekend. Ah, like you can't get any better than that. Watching that transformation happen. It was just unreal. 
so that's that's cool that's what i was kind of hoping you'd say so it's a pet dog it's it's a recovery issue it's mm-hmm. not a um it's not a sport dog it's not something that they've got a an end goal other than Mm-mm. live comfortably with the dog yes and is there avenues in your online stuff for that you know i know you're talking about reactivity courses and stuff like that so that's something you enjoy giving to people more? I love it. Yeah. So I love that area because I feel like I'm really having an impact and I'm mm-hmm. really serving people and dogs when we can get in there and teach them. It's the craziest thing because I think as I explore this online space and as I interact with just massive amounts of dog owners, because before it, you know, you're in, I was in my own little world yeah. and now I have this massive quantity of dog owners. I'm seeing people that maybe don't know that they even can play with their dog and have fun with their dog. Mm-hmm. And then when I say, Hey, just, you know, have fun, that feels really foreign to them. So I love being able to bring that back. And so we're going to be doing reactivity, aggression and those types of things, because I feel like I can serve people a little bit better there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i'm thinking about that sort of unfolding so when you do your online mm-hmm. are people just watching you or are you watching them at the same time so the way that it works is we'll do um for the reactivity boot camp for instance we did daily emails and videos so they watch me work a dog mm-hmm. and then they have a facebook group where they post their videos so they'll get a homework assignment and then they post their videos inside of the group so that we can see what they're doing and see their progress we can answer any questions and say hey yep you're on the right track or hey why don't we make a make a suggestion make a tweak so mm-hmm. yeah do you ever have concerns do you see people that maybe put their dog too far, say it's a reactivity issue and you're telling them how to address a trigger or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly in their video, they're, they're really addressing the trigger instead of, you know, skirting around the trigger. Yes. Huge. I think it's a huge, it was a huge concern for me before we even did the reactivity boot camp because I said, there's a lot of things that I can teach online. Like I can teach you to get out and play with your dog. I can teach you all these things. And I feel really safe doing that mm-hmm. because I feel like even if you make a mistake, we're not going to ruin yeah. lives, right? Yeah. And so when we embarked on this whole reactivity, so many people had asked me, you know, please do this. And I didn't want to, and I didn't want to for years. I said, there's no chance. It's too dangerous. I can't tell you to take your reactive dog and expose him to something that is mm. going to set him off and hope that you listen to the message or understood or, you know, absorbed the message that I sent. And uh, so what we did was we heavily screened everybody that came in and we chose very specific issues to deal with. And then we broke it down in such a slow process that it prevented people from going too fast because I literally didn't give them the information to move on. So we controlled it as best as we could. And it ended up working out far better than I thought it was going to. So I thought this was going to be a one and done. I wasn't going to (laughs) want to do it again. I was going to feel really insecure and I don't want people to get in uncomfortable situations ever. And it worked so much better than I thought it would. So we're definitely going to do it again. I think it's an important thing for, I don't mean an insult by this, but for the average pet owner Mm -hmm. that we have people like you and many other pet interested trainers out Mm -hmm. there because a lot of times when I attend seminars and again this is not swapping one insult for another it's just laying it out there as a reality but I go to a lot of seminars and the seminars are focused primarily on sport work yes the problem with that is our clients won't follow along with that exactly it's great for the trainers Mm -hmm. like the trainers love it for Mm -hmm. for improving our own personal dogs Mm -hmm. and and re-energizing ourselves with that you know, like it gives us a little hope and a little inspiration that we can do things better ourselves and even lift our game and smarten our act up. All of that, Mm -hmm. absolutely relevant. Mm -hmm. But trying to translate that to Mr. and Mrs. Jones, Mm -mm. they'll look at you and go, oh, this looks way too complicated. It's not the right thing to teach people who just won't make the time to do it. They won't appreciate the finesse. They won't appreciate the head up and the the dog doing perfect healing. They'll never find an application where that will work in their life. The reality is that most people, they just need their dog to be under some effective management. They're looking for some sort of behavioral substance in the dog. That's why I think that's so important because we when we're doing things like this, we're serving the greater community. And exactly. I'm talking 95% of dog owners around the world. They need more of this message. They need to, yep. don't get me wrong, everything's important. It's all important. I'm really trying to insert the the importance of us as trainers being inspired by other trainers yes. to lift our game and to be more honest with our art and our skill form. Mm-hmm. Because eventually there will be somebody who says to you, hey, I've enjoyed this pet dog work. And now I'm inspired to yes. to go one up. Yep. Now I am inspired to enter 
the ring sports yep. or competitive obedience. Yep. Ben Dawson sort of comes to mind when I think of that. Mm-hmm. Guy I sold a puppy to, he just fell in love with his dog, fell in love with the concept of going one one up and, and discovering more about I mean, he's he's one of many people that have found that passion and found that drive to kick themselves into gear a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But he needed to want it on his own. Yes. It's like everybody. You need like if you want to lose weight, you've got to that's your own personal journey. You yep. can't be pushed or coerced or bullied into it. Yep. You've got to say to yourself, this is the day that I'm going to endure the pain. I'm going to stop eating as much. I'm going to exercise a little more. I'm just going to do it because I want to do it for me. Nobody else can make you do it. You've got to do it. And it's the same thing with dog training. It's huge. So kudos. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm appreciating it. It's really good. Thank you. I love this space. And I think for me, sport, sport training is just a little bit different because for me, it is literally to make me a better trainer so that I can better serve everybody that needs the help. Right. Yeah. Because I think we've created a platform where we have this massive supportive community and we've really kind of fine tuned motivating people to get out and do things with their dogs, which is so awesome. And I think that's why I tend to pursue dog sports is literally to make myself better and to refine my skills every single day so that I can just be a better dog trainer, right? But my end goal is not to, you know, stand up on some podium and be competing on a world level. My literally my goal is to be a better dog trainer myself. Hey, listen, better my I, skills. I love watching people do things like parkour and all that sort of yeah. stuff. But am I going to do that? No. There's no way <laughs> right. in hell. Exactly. I'm not going to jump off a building, go rolling <laughs> around on the, you know, like on another building or anything right. like that. That's the thing about dog sport as well for a lot of people is that it looks amazing. Like amazing. it's so like when you watch it, it's so impressive mm-hmm. to watch and it's so much it's so adrenalized. Yeah. It's a very, very glamorous look. It is. But the reality is is that people can admire it, mm-hmm. but they won't do it. Mm-hmm. They just won't do it. Exactly. But it it's still important. It's yep. still important. Everything is relevant and there is a market for everything. Yeah. But they're like I like I keep saying to people, the reality is that there's so many hungry minds out there mm-hmm. who can save a dog mm-hmm. by having somebody who actually knows how to keep that dog in the home. Absolutely. It's, it's terribly, terribly important. It is. It is. And mm. I think having resources too where people can do it from home and not be embarrassed to be in front of somebody. Yeah. How many mm. people, I know so many people that say, listen, I've got a dog with all of these behavioral issues and I don't want you to ever meet him. Right. And I'm like, but I can help. I, I swear I can help. And they say, no, 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 it's way too embarrassing. So now I can give them a way to do it where mm. it's a little anonymous. Right. It, it doesn't feel so scary or overwhelming or or daunting. And then they get into a group with, you know, thousands of other dog owners going through the same exact thing. That's really empowering for them. I can tell you this one quick story. Mm-hmm. Years ago, uh, you're going to Melbourne mm-hmm. and I used to live in Melbourne for most of my life until mm-hmm. I moved up here. And uh I used to run a, a volunteer club down there, the Rottweiler Club. I was the director down there. Yep. And this one lady came in and she stood in the doorway and she was just watching what was going on. And every time I went to approach her, she'd just turn around and disappear. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, fuck, what have I done? <laughs> right. You know, like, does she think that I'm a murderer or something like that? Because any time I'd walk towards her, she'd just about face and, <laughs> and walk off into the car park. Right. W- were you wearing pants? <laughs> Those days, yes. I wasn't doing my Humphrey B. Bear impersonation. So one day what I did is I saw her in the doorway and I thought, I'm going to counter this. I'm going to go out the back door and I'm going to come around and I'm going to come up behind her. Mm -hmm. And But I didn't do it in a a creepy way and just like touch her on the shoulder. And I I had pants on. But but I came around the corner and uh, I just said, "Um, hey, how are you doing? And she turned around and looked at me and it was a good distance. You know, Mm -hmm. like I said, I didn't want to sneak up and frighten her. But she turned around and she said, oh, look, I'm terribly sorry. I don't waste anyone's time. I said, talk to me. Like, I've seen down here for like four weeks. What's mm-hmm. going on? And she just burst into tears. Mm. And I said, um, I said, come for a walk. Let's go for a walk out in the Oval. Just let the classes run. All the instructors are on that. Let's come and have a little walk. So we went and had a walk in the Oval. And I said, what's going on? Like, I've seen you down here. You, you're obviously interested, but you've never come up and talked to anyone. Is there somebody in there that's intimidating? She said, no, it's not that. Mm-hmm. She said, I'm so goddamn embarrassed about my dog. I just don't know how I'm going to, first of all, get him out of the car to get him in here. And I said, but this is what this is for. This is a sanctuary for people like you. None of those dogs in there are perfect. None of those dogs in there are angels. I said, all of them, you know, I said, there's a lot of dogs in there that are reactive. There's a lot of dogs that are problematic. And she said, oh, you know, I've just been humiliated through 
other styles I've been to and people that I've met. And I said, yeah, yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. And I said, but that's not going to happen down here. Mm-hmm. We're not about the humiliation. We're about the education. This is as you have much right to be here as I do. This yeah. is us, not me or them or whatever. Yeah. And um, she said, look, can I just feel my way into it? And said, There's no pressure, you know, but um, I said, the worst thing you can do now is go home and never come back. And I said, because once you do that, you basically are dooming your dog. When you feel comfortable and when you're ready, come talk to me. We'll get this dog out of the car. And we did, you know, like weeks went on. She finally had the, the trust in us to come down and she brought the dog down. And the dog was bad. It was it had some reactive issues, but it wasn't as bad as what she built it up in her mind. But she just had such a deflated level of confidence. She just really needed people to support and nurture her. And when she realized that the network closed in around her and people were supportive and friendly and cheering her on and coaching her and so forth. Like everyone jumped in, the members jumped in, the trainers jumped in. I mean, we took that dog from being um, a nervous wreck into a dog that started to enter competitive obedience. Mm -hmm. It was a year later, like it took 12 solid months of training, but she was so determined to change herself around. But going from a a pet person, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, she had other shit going on in her life. That was evident, but we never really discussed that. But what we did discuss was what she needed to do to take responsibility. As you said before, we made it clear, you need to you need to be the one that makes the big change here. Yes. The dog is primarily a product of its environment, mm-hmm. the environment that you're creating around it. It was one of many that I got to see. It's one of many that, I, you know, like all of us as trainers in the room have got to see people working with. It was just fantastic to see that pet training does have such a significant impact on just an ordinary life. It does. Yeah. Yeah. To go back a little bit of a step and to not play devil's advocate, but to present the opposite side of the coin, but still in agreement with you both, is that I think that some people that give seminars and stuff, if they're sport-focused people, and certainly we get accused of this, not accused, people say on the podcast that we talk too much about sports stuff mm-hmm. and we're more interested in the bite work and that we should talk about the others. but Because we are. Because we are. <laughs> <laughs> but- and, and fuck you. <laughs> it's our podcast. <laughs> talk about what I want to talk about. Um, but people who focus on the method are a problem. Mm-hmm. It's the people who focus on the principles is yep. not because the principles for mm. dog training is the same. So mm-hmm. if people really only know the method, then they are useless to – if the method is probably useless to the pet world. Yeah. Teaching a bark and hold, the method of doing that – is probably useless to the average pet owner. Absolutely. But the principles behind that. Hell yeah. You, yep. you have yep. something you overly overwhelmingly desire and I'm going to teach you to express something before you get to get it. Yep. That is what every pet dog owner should be involved in. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it was interesting for me. I mean, Lauren's in the room when I first left the army and I spent a month with Lauren. I don't know if she told you. I spent a month with Lauren um, – just feeling out what it would be like to train pet dogs for a living. Sure. Thank you very much, Lauren. Mm-hmm. So I came from high stakes dog training with dogs that want to kill you. Yep. And I don't really see any difference between that in to pet worlds because most of the people that are calling you is because they're in a really shitty position. Exactly. And now they're involved in high stakes dog training. Mm-hmm. The stakes are different, but they're still high. Like it, the, the, the outcome is still going to be problematic for the people. So I feel like it's the same as... You know, in PSA, in the level one, my dog's going to down on the move and then he's going to have a bite sleeve thrown in front of him and a can curtain thrown behind him by a decoy on the field. And people go, that's ridiculous, right? But a dog that can do that is not worried about someone going past them in a trolley and it making a rattling noise. And so many pet people, you say, hey, can your dog down? And they go, yeah, like for two to three seconds. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so the principles carry over. And that's what I feel like us as... You know, I think I don't want to put words in your mouth, but certainly my passion is in the sports, Mm -hmm. but I'm able to separate, and I I think for sure you are, the the method from the principles yes, and apply the principles to the pets and get the same thing. And really in the sports, we're really just proving that. What we're doing is it's a, a, and it's a proofing ground Mm -hmm. that my, my skills to become a method, but I can then apply those skills, those principles to elsewhere. Absolutely. 
I think. Hey, hey let me just put it out there. There's some, <laughs> there's some shitty pet dog trainers out there. Yeah. I mean, they're, and they're the people that really do need to go to some of these more inspired seminars to lift their game. And that's why I said it's so important for us to, to learn what's out there in the world and what people are doing and what the latest science is in training. Like, I keep referring back to Chad Mackin because I'm sure I heard him say this, but we're only current with science that we actually know right now. Exactly. And that's the thing is science is, it's an evolving mechanism. It keeps, you know, we come up with theories and we come up with what we believe is fact. And then 10 years later, we look back at it and say, well, that's what we knew then. But what we actually know now because of technology, because of the new space we're in, this is what we actually know. And that's an important thing because I, I see a lot of lazy people who have, they're 20 years in, but they're 19 and a half years of doing it the same way. They've never come out and sat in a room with people like you who've researched somewhere different yeah. and spoken to somebody differently. And that's what I think is important. That's the respect I think people owe to not only themselves, but their market and, yeah. and to people who have done the work and have bothered to read the research and then give it out. You yeah. know, I think that's that's a generosity that I, I love seeing in in trainers and like i said it doesn't matter if it's a sport trainer it doesn't matter if it's a nose work trainer it no. doesn't matter if it's a pet dog trainer um somewhere in the information of their seminar or their research there's some something very very important that's going to make a difference in in a dog that you're going to come across one day absolutely and i think for me my favorite one of my favorite things to do in in the dog world is to get with people that have a completely polar opposite training style as mm -hmm. me because they have so much. It just always leaves me going home and thinking for, you know, two days straight. My mind's going because I'm like, hmm, that's really fascinating. And I think a lot of times we get so divisive in dog training just in general where we're like, ah, one track, this is what we do. Mm -hmm. And we we lose out on all of that opportunity of the people that are really kind of thinking outside of the box. And I mean, we're all we're all we're not all doing it, but we all strive to stay in line with science and mm. to stay current and to stay well-read and well-researched. But I think having those experiences with the folks that are thinking outside of the box and do do things differently and asking the question why is huge for moving everything forward. That cognitive dissonance is such an enemy to us all, isn't it? It really is. It's something that I've I've suffered from extensively in the past, wanting to protect people's legacies and, mm -hmm. and be loyal to to people, but I was wrong in doing it. Mm -hmm. And it's it's an important thing to identify with when you can actually see that when you look back now at your history, the, the important thing for all of us is to learn from history, like to learn from yes. the mistakes you made and, and just see that you need to cut a new path. Mm -hmm. I think those things are like, they're just invaluable, mm -hmm. really are for anybody in any field, science, dog training, a chef, it doesn't yes. matter. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, it's, it's realizing that, I mean, just going on that for an example, I've watched chefs like Gordon Ramsay going into people's kitchens and they're saying, why is my business failing? Well, because you won't freaking change mm -hmm. because you're stuck on a mindset that my filet mignon is the best in the world where people are saying it tastes like shit, yep. you know, and then ha having him go and say, if you change what you're doing, if you change your menu, you'll find that you'll attract customers back. Yep. And he doesn't what, say it like that. No, no. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he really cuts It's work. fucking shit. <laughs> That's how <he> <laughs> I love Gordon Ramsay. I'd like to hang out with him for a day. Gordon, yeah. if you're listening, get in touch. Not before Joe Rogan. Yeah, you're in line. Yep. No, I think I'm really lucky in like my personality was developed in a, in, like I was in the army from when I was 19, in a high stakes job. True. And so- we don't really get attached to anything. I, want, I need to be the best I possibly can be mm -hmm. at this. And so I've always had that in mentality. I don't know that I would have if I wasn't in that job. But mm -hmm. if I can talk to someone and they're different, I'm like, ooh, ooh, yeah. I, need to, I need to understand why you think that. Absolutely. And maybe mm -hmm. it's because you're a moron, but maybe it's because you know something I don't. So I need to unpack that and figure that out. Mm -hmm. And I'm not attached to any method or system or mm -hmm. anything because if, if it works, then I, I want to impose it. The last thing, and it's such a weird thing, but you do see it in dog world a lot where it's like, Oh, I can see that working over there. So I just go into a total displacement behavior <laughs> over here <laughs> so that I I mustn't confront that I'm wrong, mm -hmm. which is a weird thing for me. I'm always like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. right. How do you not want to now steal this person and get all of their knowledge? That's it. Bizarre. I guess uh, another question Pat sort of uh, picked on a little bit at the start, mentors. Who have you studied? Who, like, who, who would you have picked out of the group? It's funny because when I – when I think about that, it's 
So it's constant. I'm always in courses or workshops every single month. I do, you know, two or three. And it's always these big name dog trainers. But if I have to look back, it's the people that are behind the scenes that have had the most impact on my career. So, you know, I talked about it initially, you know, my breeder that I got my dog from. Her husband is one of the most phenomenal and understated dog trainers that I've ever met. Uh, His knowledge is just unreal. Mm -hmm. And learning from him was a big catalyst in everything that I do and all of my foundation. I mean, he's smacked me upside the head so many times when I'm not on the right path and pulled me back and grounded me. And so if I had to say like, who is the person that had the most influence on your career, it would be him hands down. Um, so he is just, it's Ron Skinner. So they do uh, less on Valeroo, uh working dogs in, in Southern California and his skill. I've never seen anything like it. Like he's so well-researched. So, you know, when it comes to the big names, like I do all of the courses and I go to all of the workshops and I learn so much from them, but he's had the most impact on my career for sure. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like the the behind this. I always tend to gravitate towards the behind the scenes where I'm like, oh, this is awesome what I'm learning here. But look at that person back there. Right? Mm-hmm. Like it's always the behind the scenes. But it doesn't have to be somebody <laughs> whose name's up in lights. It, right. it doesn't. I mean, the whole point of having a mentor is, it's, it, like you said, it's somebody who changed your career and you keep yeah. going back to thinking, is this the person? No. That's really something. Yeah, it was a big catalyst for mm. me. And I cannot, like his work is just still, I still regard him after learning and growing. And I mean, honestly, when I first started training dogs, I don't even want to know that person anymore. But you grow, mm. right? And you change and mm. you get better. And even to this day, I look back at his skill level and I'm like, he is on point and he had it right the whole time, you know? Yeah, that's If only really cool. I would have listened in the beginning. <laughs> but I don't think you can because I don't think you, you know the, the language properly. Mm-mm. And that's the point. I've heard other people say that before, you know, if only I paid more attention, if only I listened. But eventually you did. Yeah. And it's like when we're training dogs. I mean, dogs can't listen to us and they can't hear us at the start because we haven't developed that Rosetta Stone yet. Yeah. You know, and that, that's what I've seen a group of students out there when um, when we're doing some training and they're looking at me and they're going, it just doesn't make any sense. The dog doesn't seem to get me like the dog's looking at me like I'm the enemy. And I no. said, well, potentially you are no. like you're a stranger holding the lead. But this is when they're paired up with dogs. Mm-hmm. I said, get to know the dog a little bit, like learn the common language first okay. and then the dog will hear you. Exactly. You know, your voice will suddenly come through and the mm-hmm. dog will go, oh, my God, it all of a sudden makes so much sense. And I said, but that's part of the conditioning process. It it takes the time it takes. Yep. Time takes time, isn't it? Isn't it? But <laughs> but world famous. What, what's the saying? Time takes time. Time needs time. Time needs time. Have you heard that? I uh, Not time after time. That's Cindy Lauper. <laughs> so I'm asking. <laughs> time needs time. Bart wrote that on a post of mine and I thought, oh, but that English is your fifth language. That doesn't make any sense. And right. then I, I sat there thinking about it and went, oh, no, that makes that no. is exactly right. No. There's no way to speed it up. It takes the time that it takes. It does. Time needs time. Absolutely. Do you know, I think Bart has resurfaced the word sissy. <laughs> I don't think, I've never used sissy since I've been in, in primary school. But since I've met Bart, every time I, I look at someone who looks like a sissy now, I, yeah. I say, you're a sissy. Do you use sassa? Sassa? No. <laughs> never breed a sissy with a sassa. <laughs> Before we wrap up. Mm-hmm. Reading any good books lately? Oh, I was just about to ask that. Well done. Oh, my gosh. Or or not even if you haven't lately. Like, is What's there a standout book? book? Like, one that you've read that you've thought, oh, my God, I, you know, that's it's a book that I, I keep seeing it in my sleep. So, I think that the most recent book that I've read that I really enjoyed was Peter Shirk's book, mm-hmm. uh, Successful Together. I read that one recently and also maybe... Um, Bones Would Rain From the Sky. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I yep. love that one too. So those are m- probably m- my two favorites. Yeah. I haven't actually read that book yet, but yeah, that's it's a, on my list. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely on the list. I'm getting through a few books at the moment, but that one is definitely on the list. Yep. Yeah, yeah I loved that one. I've just recently downloaded um, Sapolsky's Behave, mm-hmm. which is 20 hours of book, of audio book. Is that on iTunes? Uh, no, it's on uh, Audible. Oh, yeah. really? So, yeah, that's my next tackle is uh, 20 hours of Robert Sapolsky. Does awesome. he read it? That's a good question. I will find out for you. I like it when the author reads the book. I do too. I love, that's what I loved about Jordan Peterson's book, hearing his scratchy old voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kermit the Frog um, reading yeah. me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Hey, Megan, thank you very much thank for so coming much. on the show. I know it was a big effort for you to come out here and it was a pain in the ass with me not being here on the weekend. It would have been <laughs> awesome to do this. 
on like the Saturday. And thank so you, Lauren thank you. Hoyle. Thank you, yes. Lauren, for bringing Megan to Australia. Thank you for the opportunity for everybody and chauffeuring her around out here today. Give us all your information. How can people get in contact with you? What's the website? Everything like that. Yep. So website is colored-scholar.com. Then you can find everything there. We've got a big blog and all of our online courses there. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks very much. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Megan. Thanks. Well, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, you can like, rate, share, subscribe from whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump onto Patreon, check out the Canine Paradigm there. And for a few bucks a month, you get access to educational episodes. We've got two of those out now and ready for a third next month. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via Facebook. We are the Canine Paradigm on Facebook. Clint, music.